0: Well, after a brief, brief break over the holiday season, today we're back in our regular study through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so, please, if you will, open up with me. Join me as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4 beginning in verse 14 through 21 we be our focus today. I have a lingering cough, so please bear with me. Uh, Today, we kind of come to the end of a very long section here um, in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. Uh, It's kind of a transitional point in the letter. Because if you look just ahead to chapter 5, Paul turns to deal with sexual immorality and church discipline and other themes, other details and issues within the church. And so today, really, we kind of see a conclusion to what he's been arguing through the first four chapters. He kind of concludes his argument addressing the divisions and the rivalries and the personality clashes within the church. He brings to a conclusion this argument against Uh, the church's love for rhetoric and and, and worldly wisdom. And most specifically, I think, he brings to a conclusion um, kind of his argument against how they've turned against him personally. And they've challenged his authority. So he kind of moves to reestablish his authority here within the church. And this is going to become important for him to be able to address some of the specific things like the sexual immorality that he turns to next. And so this is kind of what we see today, bringing to a conclusion um, what we've considered for a few months now. Um, So keep this in mind as we now turn and look at chapter 4, beginning of verse 14. Brethren, listen, this is God's Word. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, of these arrogant people but their power for the kingdom of god does not consist in talk but in power what do you wish shall i come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness this is the reading of god's perfect word bow with me again as we pray and ask for god's understanding in it let's pray Lord we stop and we acknowledge that whether you come to us with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness we just simply long for you to come and draw near. We pray that you would grant us your presence. Lord that you would grant saving faith to those here who have not professed Christ that you would grant holiness and growth and sanctification to your people that Lord, we may live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. We pray that you would visit us and that you would form us into your image through your word. Bless this preaching. Bless your word in Christ's name. Amen. If you recall from what we've seen over the past few weeks, or really what we considered a few weeks ago, the Apostle Paul at this point had kind of had enough with the church he kind of let the Corinthians have it a little bit and this is helpful to remember that you know this is not this book is not a systematic theology or a manuscript that he's working on before he sends to the publisher Um, this is a letter this is a personal letter and in a very real sense we can kind of you know see how Paul responds in the moment at times he hears about the problems in the church. He picks up his pen and starts writing. And we can kind of track his emotions sometimes as he's writing along. We see this in the last section. Paul had clearly gotten a little emotional. And he let some really hard words fly. If you look at, up at that section in verses 8-10, through 10, he says, "Like Already you have become rich. Already you have all you want. Without us, you have become kings. And he goes on there with this note of sarcasm and, and even mockery and ridicule, in a sense. You, you just think you're so awesome. How pitiful and lowly are we in comparison to you? You're just so amazing. This hard language kind of highlights for us how serious their sin was and really you know, how Paul was hurt by a lot of it. But it's almost as if here in verse 14, we see how Paul kind of realizes how hard he's been. And so he kind of changes his tone really quickly to soften the blow. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He doesn't want to shame them to the point where they fall into despair. He doesn't want the sarcasm and the mockery to be the last thing that they hear on the matter. And so he kind of moves towards a more affectionate tone, a more tender tone. And as we've seen several times throughout this section, in pastoring the church, Paul uses language often that parallels the relationship between a parent and their children. And this is where that kind of becomes explicit. He calls them my beloved children. He says that I am your father in the gospel. He wants them to know that he loves them as children. But he also wants them to know that they owe him the honor and loyalty and obedience as to a father. And brethren, this is what I think is most helpful for us in this section. What I want you to see today. This passage really helps us see and grasp what Christian discipleship looks like. Isn't discipleship one of our chief engagements and responsibilities in the gospel and in the church? Whether we're talking about a pastor discipling a flock. Whether we're talking about a parent discipling a child. Whether we're talking about one of you, simply a Christian, seeking to disciple and love other Christians in your life. Discipling is one of our central callings and responsibilities in the gospel and in the church. And here we get kind of you know, a picture of what Christ-centered discipleship looks like. Here we see that Paul moves very quickly from open rebuke to very tender affirmations of his love for them. He moves from firm words of correction to this desire where he says, look, I want to persuade and help and motivate and lead you into the obedience that imitates Christ and glorifies God. You see from this that that all discipleship, whether it's in the pastorate, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the church, All faithful discipleship includes both loving care and concern, but also rebuke and correction at times when necessary. But here's the point we see here. Neither gentleness nor firmness is effective in God's economy unless it's grounded and fueled by love. And that's what Paul moves to reassure the church of here in this section. To reaffirm his love for them. His desire to help them. So that they might see and know, Ah, he he loves me. He cares for me. I've seen this. Thus I will listen to him even if he has some hard words for me. And things that at times are difficult to swallow. Brethren, this is another way, as we've seen all along here, that we are to cultivate the mind of Christ in our hearts, in our homes, and in our churches. The mind of Christ in action through Christian discipleship. That's what we see in our passage here today. So to work through this, uh, we're going to consider it under three points. Fatherly guidance, faithful following, and firm warning. We see fatherly guidance, faithful following, and then a firm warning. So let's begin here with this idea of fatherly guidance. Fatherly guidance in Christian discipleship, we might call it. I want you to look again at verse 14 and 15. because And remember the context. On the heels of this very hard-pointed, Language that really cut to the core. He says, verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. (coughs) At first glance, we might say, how in the world can Paul say that he wasn't trying to shame them? I mean, is that kind of a joke? I just think about the, the sarcasm and the mockery of the previous section. Does it kind of speak for itself? is there little doubt that, you know, that his little rant here in verses 8 through 10 would cause them to be a little bit ashamed of themselves? I think that's obvious. And I think that's why Paul says what he says here, that he doesn't want them to feel ashamed. Um, well, not that he doesn't want it to feel them, but he doesn't intend simply to ashamed. them. He kind of acknowledges the fact that his hard wording would cause them to be ashamed. And I point this out because we need to understand that, that he's not afraid of shaming them as if shaming them in and of itself is a bad thing. We know this among other reasons because later in the letter he'll say twice in two other occasions he'll specifically write i say this to your shame we live in a day and age where our culture is trying to do away with shame don't we everything is positive affirming self-esteem a healthy sense of self-worth that's that's everything in our day In our day and in our culture, sin is often either justified as normal or harmless or it's explained away as an accident or a mistake or something I really can't control. It's somebody else's fault. It's my circumstances. It's my bodily makeup. We have a culture that is afraid and and resistance to feeling any sort of shame whatsoever. And we see this in the New Testament as well. Philippians 3.19, Paul is describing enemies of the cross that glory in their shame. The end of Romans 1, Paul talks about how the things that, that, that ought to bring shame, sinful man has now boasted in. But in contrast to this, exposing sin in a way that leads to shame is is often a helpful way to correct behavior. Sometimes we need to feel the shame of our sin. We need that shameful humbling because that that type of humility is what often leads us to repentance. So I point this out so that you don't see that, that it's not shaming them in and of itself that Paul backs away from Rather, his point here when he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, is that he's not trying to shame them simply for the sake of degrading them. And that's where shame certainly does go off the rails. Shame that crushes a child, for example. It makes them feel worthless. It makes them feel useless. It's degrading to them. It... it, 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 is shame that kind of, in a sense, attacks them being made in the image of God. It drives them to despair. It tempts them to give up. That's shame that's unhelpful. That's shame that is destructive. A better way of putting it might be that shame or rebuke or ridicule that does not come from a heart of love aimed at building up is shame that is destructive. And that's Paul's point here. I don't intend to shame you simply to make you despair. I don't wish to shame you or shout at you, kind of like a drive-by shooting at how wrong your behavior is. Rather, you need to know that, that I love you. You are my beloved children. And I say these things that bring shame in order to admonish you. The word admonish means to warn with the goal of instructing or correcting behavior, a particular course of action. It is a word of correction, a word of warning, but it's, but it's specifically aimed at not provoking or embittering. And that's Paul's fatherly guidance here on display. <clears throat> if you're familiar with the game of basketball... Um, maybe this will help illustrate. Think of a basketball coach on the sideline during a game. And uh, maybe there's a player on the opposing team who commits a hard and maybe unnecessary foul. And more than likely, the coach is going to throw his hands up, right? Maybe yell at the opposing player, yell at the opposing coach. and Say, well, you know, what are you doing? That's unnecessary. That's not how you play the game. Somebody's going to get hurt. You know, his words and his actions, maybe his hands and, and the, the tone and, and the, the volume of his voice, and when, in some part, intend to shame the other player. What are you doing? Don't do that. So he doesn't do that again. But what if the coach's own player commits the same type of foul? If he were to then just... Yell and throw up his hands in the exact same way. You know what? That would probably embarrass his own player. It could create distance between him and his player and and hinder future performance. I think a better way the coach would handle that with his own players to probably pull him aside and privately admonish him and say, "Don't do that. Um, That's not how the game is played. Let me help you adapt your game." so that that doesn't happen again, and so that we win, and so that you flourish as a player. There might be a little bit of shame involved with the coach confronting the error to his player, but the context and the manner in which he handles it is going to serve to strengthen and encourage the player rather than simply tear him down and shame him like you would with an an opposing player. And, And I think that's kind of the picture here. Paul's saying, look, I'm trying to help you yeah, I want to correct your course of action. Yeah, there's some shame involved here. But I want your welfare. I'm not simply trying to embarrass you. I'm not simply trying to belittle you. I'm not just expressing my anger and my hurt toward you. You are my children. And I'm your father. The coach doesn't have a relationship with the players on the other team. So his reaction when they foul is going to be received a whole lot differently than when his players, own players, do the same thing. He has a relationship with his own players. His players know, doesn't my coach, doesn't he spend countless hours in, in preparation and practice and scheming and planning and coaching to help me become a better player and to help the team win? I can receive that correction from him then. That's Paul here. He's saying, I'm not yelling at you like a coach from the opposing coach from the sidelines. Don't you know that I love you? And don't you remember that we have a history together? He says in verse 15, You might have countless guides in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. Our relationship is unique. You need to remember that. You may be infatuated with all these other teachers and leaders. But I'm the one who brought you the gospel. I'm the one who planted this church. I'm the one who spent a year and a half with you in the beginning, making sure you were established. If I, if I didn't love you, would I have endured the, the incredible hardship of evangelism and church planning there in Corinth? If I didn't love you, would I labor among you without receiving financial compensation? If I didn't love you, would I have stayed with you longer than I did with any other church plant? You know, he's he's not pulling rank here. He's not just, um, you know, uh, exercising a power play saying, Don't you know who I am? No, he's saying, I love you. Don't you know that? I brought you the gospel, I spent this time with you. Using the analogy of of the parent. Doesn't a father have more authority over a child than a school teacher? Isn't a child to be loyal, more loyal to their parent and heed the instruction of their parent above and beyond the loyalty they may show or the obedience they may show towards other teachers and counselors? We can't help but think about how relevant this particular point can be in our day as well as we think about our relationships in the church. You know, Paul's words here might be saying something like, sure, there are countless books and podcasts and sermons and other pastors and counselors and friends who help guide and instruct us in the Christian life and praise God for them. What about the pastor who knows you by name? What about the pastor who regularly and faithfully and laboriously, not as a labor but hard work, prays for you? And each and every week prepares preaching and teaching and ministries and, and other fellowships and activities with you specifically on his mind and heart. What about the pastor who's watched you grow and stood beside you as you matured in the Lord? The one who knows all your strengths and weaknesses. The one who's counseled you through wrestling with sin or suffering or hardship or uncertainty. The pastor who has demonstrated his love and care for your soul that he's not just a hired hand, that he's not in ministry for a career, certainly not for his health. But the one who labors, as Paul says elsewhere, for your joy in the Lord. That's what Paul is saying here. He's not denying the usefulness of other teachers. He's just saying, look, you can receive these words from me because of our relationship and our history. You can receive even words that that hurt at times because I've demonstrated that I love you and that I'm seeking your flourishing and that I seek the flourishing of the entire church. Shouldn't you listen then to what I'm saying? This is how Paul guides with a fatherly, loving type of manner. And, brethren, again, to bring this home in a point of application, this is helpful for us because it shows us if we seek to disciple others, if we seek to faithfully parent our own children, our relationship with them is always most important and most critical. It doesn't matter how much truth there is in what you say, and it doesn't matter ultimately how gentle or how firm you are with your words. Because if your words don't come within the context of a loving relationship, they're likely to fall on deaf ears. Like an opposing coach yelling at you from the sidelines. Brethren, see here, if we want to have a positive impact on others, if we want to cultivate godly discipleship in our homes and in our communities, in our church, The relationship, a healthy and loving relationship, is what matters. And that's why, you know, it's so important not just to show up on Sunday mornings. You can't fulfill your obligations to the church by just showing up on Sunday mornings. You're called to be part of the church life. The fellowships, the Bible studies, the prayer meetings, the meals, even each other's lives on a personal and private uh, manner. Because um, it's from the standpoint of a time-cultivated relationship that we can both give and receive gentle and encouraging words, but also the difficult and hard words when necessary. People will receive our discipleship when we know that we have in, that they, when they know we have invested in them and that we love them. They know the source and can respond accordingly, even if they don't like what they hear. That's Paul's fatherly guidance that we see here. But secondly, equally important is the fact that we can't just expect to disciple people simply with our words. So that leads us then to faithful following. Secondly, faithful following. On the basis of his fatherly love and his history with them, how does he instruct them? Look at verse 16. I urge you, be imitators of me. In parenting, just like in church leadership and discipleship, leading by example is absolutely necessary. It's indispensable. Children may not listen to our words, but they will always pay attention to our example. You can certainly take that to the bank. So Paul builds on this fatherly metaphor. He's saying, like father, like son. And to be clear, he's not saying, you know, follow me instead of following Apollos or follow Cephas. Remember, they were all kind of dividing up against themselves. He's not saying, look, attach yourselves to me in contrast to the others. That would go against what he's been arguing the whole time. Boast only in the Lord. He's simply saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me and imitate me as I put on the mind of Christ. This is... A call for them to seek the unity of the church and to promote the church's well-being corporately, as Paul has labored to do. It's a, it's a call for them to put on Christ in, in self-giving, in sacrifice, in suffering, in humility for the good of others and for the well-being of the church. It's a call for them to put away childish and selfish and immature, divisive behavior and evaluations of the church based upon the standards of this world and to move on then to love and humility and self-giving. It's a call for them to embrace suffering and tribulation when necessary. The difficulties that come with walking the way of the cross. That's what he's saying. Imitate me my lowliness, my humility, my love for the kingdom. And you know what this shows us, brethren? It shows us, I think, that ultimately, disciples are made by people and through relationships rather than simply through words and ideas. Of course, words are necessary. Paul just said in verse 15 that he became a father to them in Christ through the gospel. Without the words of the gospel, you don't have disciples of Christ. And it's the word that sanctifies as well. But my point in this is that true growth and discipleship will never be accomplished just with words and words alone. Transformation happens, whether we're talking about with our children. Whether we're talking about in the church, whether we're talking about on with one-on-one relationships, transformation happens when people are not just taught, but they are shown by example what it means to live the Christian life. So, to be fair here, just like a moment ago, I kind of made the argument that a church member ought to be Loyal to their pastor above other teachers and guides in the Christian life. At the same time, here on the flip side of this, pastors have a solemn duty and responsibility to live in a way that models the gospel. That they may rightly say, Imitate me. And that's Paul's point here. He's saying, I'm not just demanding loyalty because I'm your father. He's not just saying, you know, as we've all heard our parents say from time to time, because I'm the dad, that's why, right? Which is legitimate in some sense, but that's not ultimately what he's saying. He's saying, I have a responsibility as well to live this way, to set this example. So see me and follow me. See that I'm not a coach yelling at you from the sidelines. I'm actually in the game myself. And I'm not demanding of you anything that I'm not willing or responsible to do myself. That's true leadership. In the home, in the church, in discipleship. Leading by love and leading by example. Recognizing that followers have a responsibility to follow, but leaders also have a solemn responsibility to rightly lead. And there's one more element this too before we move on uh, that's related to this. Look at um, verse 17 again. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul is saying, I can't be with you right now, but I'm going to send you my best guy. The guy who I desperately need and rely upon. I sent him to you to prove my love to you. I sent him to you to prove that I am practicing what I preach. That I'm not demanding from you a love and a humility and a sacrifice and a willingness to suffer and a willingness to put your rights aside for the good of others. I'm not demanding any of this any more than I'm not doing and actively pursuing myself. Someone else will bear witness to that. He will show you the way that I live. And then at the end of verse 17, don't miss this, as I teach them everywhere in every church, not only am I not demanding of you anything that I'm not willing to do myself, but I'm also not demanding of you anything that I don't demand of every church everywhere. You are called to live the same way in which the church Catholic Small c, the church universal is called to live as well. So, not only get in line with me, but get in line with a greater church at large and see that this present infatuation with these divisions and rivalries have set you apart from the church universal in a very dangerous way. Brethren, that's faithful leadership. That's faithful following as well. Leading by example, practicing what we preach, setting expectations in line with what, how we live, but also with how the church universal is called to live. And a child or a disciple and a church who is humbly and eagerly willing to follow. Not go their own way, but follow their leaders in the Lord. Leaders aren't perfect. Paul himself wasn't perfect. And and a refusal to follow a leader simply because he's not perfect is is arrogance. It's like refusing to obey a parent because their parents, parents are sinners too. But insofar as the leader imitates the mind of Christ and walks in the great tradition of the Christian faith... We have a duty and responsibility to follow. And that's God's call upon all of us in Christ. The flourishing of discipleship takes place in a context with a people who both teach and live the way of Christ and humble disciples who eagerly follow. That's faithful following. Well, as we move towards a conclusion now, I do want to note that Things don't exactly end on a particularly positive or uplifting note. And this just again reminds us that faithful discipleship always includes both loving, gentle care, but also challenge and rebuke and correction at times as well. And so, third and finally here, having reminded them and reaffirmed His love for them and the relationship that they have, and having urged them to faithfully follow him on the basis of his life and his teaching in the universal church, Paul now presses the urgency of the matter, third and finally, by concluding with a firm warning. A firm warning. Look at verse 18. Some are arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. As we've seen, some of the church were decidedly anti-Paul. And think about it, when someone has something against another, when someone has something against a leader, when someone is disgruntled out, uh, over a particular leadership or leader, isn't there a tendency at times, or even just in individual Christians, isn't there a tendency when we're upset with someone to kind of interpret all their words and actions in the worst possible light? That's what's going on here. Uh, maybe Paul had said that he was going to visit them, but had gotten delayed for some reason. And so the people were now saying, ha ah, see, here's a man who doesn't do what he says he's going to do. Or maybe he, because he hadn't been back to the church in quite some time, where some were saying, you see, he doesn't really care about us. He cares about his own things. He cares about himself. Or maybe because he had sent Timothy rather than visiting himself. Some were saying, Ah, see, he loves to hide behind the pen and his little subordinates. He won't dare come face us and speak to us face to face. Whatever it was, we don't know for sure, but by this verse here, some were arrogant towards him. For some reason, because he hadn't visited them, they were viewing that in the worst possible light. So they were boldly opposing him and his authority. Authority. So that's why Paul says, "As as soon as God wills, I'm going to show up. You might be puffed up against me. You might think that you're better than me because my speech and my message are not in the plausible words of wisdom, as he said earlier. Or as we learned from the Corinthians elsewhere, that his speech is contemptible and his bodily presence is weak. You're puffed up against me because I'm not what you think I should be. But when I come, I'm going to find out, not the talk, but the power of these people. In one sense, it's kind of like throwing down the gauntlet, right? Paul's ready for the showdown at high noon. I'm going to show up, and we're going to see who's a man, right? (laughs) Forgive me for that phrase, but you know what I mean. What does he mean, though, when he says, whose power is going to prevail when I show up? What what exactly does that mean? (coughs) Excuse me. What does this talk versus power mean in this context? Well, think about what what is the kingdom of God? If you remember back from our study of the Beatitudes in the spring, the kingdom of God is a new creation. Right? It's not seen with, with visible things. Ultimately, it's seen with spiritual realities. The inbreaking the of the new creation. And in the Beatitudes, what is the evidence of that inbreaking of the new creation? Right? Great reversals of what we might expect. Poor in spirit, merciful, peacemakers, willingness to suffer and be persecuted, pure in heart. The kingdom of God is the inbreaking of the new creation, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit being manifest in, 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 in the lives of God's people. The kingdom of God is spiritual virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, when they are present and when they are active. And that's what Paul means here when he says the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. I'm going to visit to see whether the Spirit is present in your midst. How do we know that? How do you know that? How do we know this in our day? Was Christ crucified faithfully and persistently preached? Leading to a cultivation of a people who love the Lord Jesus Christ And are devoted to him and willingly and humbly follow and imitate his manner of living? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Are there dead sinners, unbelievers being brought to new life? Is there growth and sanctification and holiness progressing in the community? You know, it's not in the externals of religion and worship that the power is seen, it's not in how we dress. It's not essentially what we do and what we don't do, even though we ought to have convictions about those things. The Holy Spirit isn't present in our church because, well, we sing hymns and we have reverent worship and our our services are full of scripture and our services are full of prayer. Those things could be there without the power of the Spirit. That's not ultimate. Those are good things, obviously, or we wouldn't do them. But most specifically, the power of the spirit and presence of the spirit, it's seen in things like humility, purity, peace, mercy, self-control, godliness, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, goodness. As the saying goes, talk is cheap. Paul says, I don't care about your talk. I don't care about your words. I don't care about your rhetoric. I don't care about your preaching. I don't care about what great doctrine you might have. I don't care about your worship. I don't care about your spiritual gifts that you're doing. You're speaking in tongues. You're prophesying. You're healing. I'm looking at your character. I'm looking at your inward grace, not your eloquent boasts. And all it takes is a quick recap of these first four chapters to know exactly what Paul means. Where is the power of God seen? It's seen, as he said, in the preaching of Christ crucified. It's seen in the humility and the love and the servant-heartedness of putting others ahead of yourself. It's seen in patient enduring of suffering and difficulty. when there's no other reason for that. There's no other external reason for why you would cling to your God in the midst of these horrible circumstances. But yet you do, and you have joy in the midst of life's most horrible circumstances. That's the power of God. It's seen in a church that puts the corporate body above the individual. It's seen in in, in a Christian or a church that joyfully walks the way of the cross, isn't out to please men, isn't out for nickels and noses and all, all of the grandeur of church life, but wants to follow Christ and love one another. It's seen in the unity and oneness of the body as a whole, and each member working properly, exercising their particular gifts to build up the church in its most holy faith. That's where God's power is seen. That's Christ's power, which has made perfect when? In our weakness. In our weakness. And this can't be manufactured. It can't be created in and of ourselves. This is the work of the Spirit. So Paul says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to, I'm going to find out I'm going to find out whether all of these teachers and all of this teaching is leading to godliness or if it's all just a show. And I'm going to expose it. And like, you know, when a child disobeys and a father calls on the phone, says, I'm on my way home. Paul says, I'm coming to deal with this. Your dad's on his way home. And that's where he kind of concludes here with this word of, of firm warning in verse 21. What do you wish? I'm coming home. Do you want me to come with a rod? Or you don't, do you want me to come with love and a spirit of gentleness? Don't let the language um, give you the wrong interpretation. Uh, love undergirds both of those approaches. The, the Proverbs speak at, at length about how It's through the use of the rod that the Father demonstrates His love for the child. The Lord loves those He reproves. So, if He comes with a rod, it's in love. Or in the spirit of gentleness, it's in love as well. Love undergirds both. Love undergirds all Christian discipleship. Paul's just simply saying, you know, depending upon your response to my words, I can either visit you and it's going to be painful, or you can listen. And when I visit you, Because of your repentance, there can be a spirit of gentleness and unity. It's up to you. But love demands that I can't leave this alone. Love demands that I can't just walk away. I love Christ too much. I love His church too much. I love the body and unity too much to shirk my responsibility to exercise authority when it's necessary in the face of sin. And that's how he concludes these first four chapters with this word a firm warning. What I write is serious. You can't just dismiss this. The Gospel is at stake. Well, brethren, as we now bring this to a conclusion, again, I want to remind you, we see from this passage kind of a model of godly discipleship. It begins... And builds upon healthy relationships when the relationship is kept most important. And it consists of of faithful leaders setting example and faithful followers imitating that example. And it includes both words of encouragement but also words of warning at times. And the ultimate goal is not in fancy talk. It's not in externals, but it's that the power of God would be made manifest in our hearts, in our homes, and in our churches through humble, servant-hearted Christ-likeness. That's the power of God at at work in the church. That is the mind of Christ taught and lived out. And that's what the Holy Spirit Calls us to as a congregation from this passage today. All you got to do is think what if the Lord Jesus Christ came and visited us? Would our godliness be in talk or would it be in power? Think back to the first few chapters of Revelation when I preached through the seven letters last year. That's that repeated refrain. Christ says, I'm coming to you. And if you don't repent, I will pull out, I will pull your lampstand, my presence. I will remove my presence from your church. At times through those letters, He says words that are really, really hard. But at other times, He encourages them. And He builds them up. And that is the final and full picture of discipleship that we see. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the faithful shepherd. And His sheep know His voice and they follow Even if they don't like what He says at times. He is the vine. We are the branches. His Father is the vine dresser. And sometimes He prunes and it hurts. But Christ does not demand of us anything that He hasn't done Himself first. Christ doesn't demand of us anything. He doesn't demand from all of the churches in the body of Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ loves you so much. If you were in Him, He loves you so much that He will do whatever is necessary for your sanctification and growth. That's the kind of Savior you need. Yes, He will bring the rod if that's what you need. And you can thank God for it. But He will also bring that gentle and lowly spirit as well to build you up. That's what you need. A Savior who loves you enough to do whatever is necessary for your growth and good and sanctification and the glory of His name and the good of the church. Even if you don't always like it. That's the kind of Savior that you need. And that's the kind of Savior that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, take comfort in that. Look to Him not only as our perfect example, but as our perfect shepherd. Suffering on behalf of the sheep, but leading and guiding and correcting and directing according to His will. Brethren, let us be encouraged and challenged by these words today as we look to our Savior. Amen. Let's pray.